Welcome, everybody, to the Kona Shane Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Rourke. Guys, I got a great medical episode today with the one and only Dr. Mac. Uh, Dr. Anna McManame is on the podcast. She's been on before. I met her just, we just sat down next to each other at the VMX conference, and I started talking to her, and she was delightful and awesome, and uh, I learned so much just sitting next to her. I was like, you have to be on a podcast. And this is her second appearance on the podcast. She is really great. You guys are going to get some great pearls in a short amount of time. We are talking about a four-year-old male neutered domestic short hair who has a systolic murmur who's in for a dental. What do you do with that? Do you do you do that case? Is that going to be okay? What precautions do we need to take? How uh, concerned should we be? Guys, you've seen this case. You don't want to miss this. Let's get into this episode. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Matt. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Oh man, I uh, I enjoy having you on the podcast. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you're <laughs> back. I have a um. I, well, let me pause and introduce you to those who don't who don't know. Uh, you are a uh, professor of uh, you are a professor of cardiology at Purdue's College of Veterinary Medicine and a lecturer and a uh, genuinely wonderful, smart person and a great darn teacher. And so that's why uh, I hope that you would be able to help me out with this case. Happy to be here. It sounds so fancy when you say it that way. <laughs> I know. I, I yeah. I get introduced and people are like, this is Andy and he has this big title. And I'm like, that sounds really fancy. I don't know if I'm qualified. Yeah. Um, because I'm I know. I'm like, boy, I hope they don't ask me hard questions. Yeah. Because yeah. I can't well, justify yeah. I'm a newbie cardiologist, but I'm enthusiastic. So <laughs> No, you're I, I think I think you're amazing. I, I love having you on the podcast. I, I got uh I have a kitty cat that I need help with. Um I, and again, maybe this is just my personal bias. Maybe it's just the ratio of dogs to cats that we tend to see in practice. Maybe it's just sort of the secretive nature of cats. Maybe it's that cats are a little bit harder to uh, physically examine than dogs sometimes. I don't feel like I find a lot of heart murmurs in cats relative to heart murmurs in dogs. Um, but I got one. I have a four-year-old male neutered domestic short hair named Alabaster who came in for a dental cleaning and he's got a heart murmur. He's got a grade two, maybe a grade three. Uh, I'm not the best at nailing exactly. Uh, he's, he's in the grade two, three range. Yeah, just a, uh, a, systolic, a systolic heart murmur. And I just, he, uh, no, no complaints from the owners. He's, he's not, uh, he doesn't seem to be uh, coughing or anything. They said, I asked him, is he coughing? And they're like, not more than usual. Um, and so that usual, usual <laughs> like, okay. Um, yeah, so it's that. Um, yeah, so I'm looking at this at this cat. One is an anesthesia patient, but then also number two is just a general mainten maintenance of a fairly young cat that I had not heard a heart murmur in before. Um, Dr. Mack, how, how do you treat that? Where do you go with this case? Yeah, I think that's a great question. This is a very common scenario of why a lot of cats come to see me, honestly. Um, I think you you hit a lot of good points right off the bat. Cats are sneaky. Cats, they hide their disease. They don't usually act sick even when they are sick. And then there's a very frustrating, uh, I guess, ratio of the number of cats that have heart murmurs that actually have heart disease 
and vice versa. So when you hear a murmur in a cat, I'd say it's a 50-50 chance that they have structural heart disease. Um, so still okay. a reasonable chance that they do have that structural heart disease that you need to further investigate before putting them under anesthesia where they're going to get fluids as, as part of their anesthetic protocol. So in cats, a murmur usually is from some type of outflow tract obstruction. So whether that's like an HOCM, so hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, or some type of less pathologic form, a dynamic right ventricular outflow tract obstruction. Um, but usually that's where we see these murmurs in these younger cats. Um, mitral valve disease really isn't common in cats. It happens in really older cats, um, like geriatric kind of cats. But in this young of an animal, I think it's very appropriate. It's a male cat. It's a middle-aged cat, domestic short hair. Those are animals that are predisposed to HCM and structural heart disease. So what okay. are you going to do with it? Well, I think if this were a dog, the answer would be easy. Take a set of baseline chest x-rays, know what you're dealing with. Unfortunately, in cats, because their heart disease they get most commonly is a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it's a concentric thickening of the ventricle. So the ventricle thickens inward. And so taking x-rays on a cat, their heart can look miraculously normal even if they have significant disease. So I say that an x-ray is helpful for ruling out severe, severe heart disease, maybe. But honestly, if you see a big heart, they probably have heart disease. If you see a normal looking heart, they still could have heart disease. So like, like 50, 50 chance they could have like heart it's, disease. Yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating, right? Because <laughs> you got this cat, yeah, you want to do the not, gentle, is, it's asymptomatic. It's much less yeah, helpful than I thought. I know. So, um, so things, I still think x-rays are okay. Um, I think that again, if you see a big heart on x-rays, then I'd say, well, you probably do have heart disease. If I see a normal okay. heart on x-rays, it just doesn't rule out heart disease. So x-ray is not wrong to do. Um, the other thing that's growing in popularity that I actually really like is something called the BNP. So this is the B-type yeah. natriuretic peptide. So this is a biomarker. Um, it is very, very specific for the heart. And what it tells us is if the heart is stretched. So it doesn't tell us what the heart disease is. It doesn't matter if it's if it's even primary heart disease, it could be like in an older cat, could be hyperthyroid heart disease, could be systemic hypertensive heart disease. But what it tells us is the ventricles are under some type of duress. They're either having a pressure overload or a volume overload, something's going on. And this is a blood test. Um, it's usually always gonna be sent out, like IDEX is the one that owns this test currently. So it's gonna be a turnaround. So it's not gonna be same day results, um, but it's, it's a simple blood test. You can do it with their pre-anesthetic uh, blood work, for example. Um, it goes out. The range for cats is pretty tight. It's about zero to a hundred. Um, kind of picomole per per liter is the for per deciliter is the range. Um, and usually if it's in that range, I don't I don't worry at all about any type of structural heart disease. If it's outside that right. range, it's a pretty sensitive test. So you might get cats that have false positives, meaning it's a little bit outside the range, but their hearts look very normal echocardiographically. Um, but that's a good screening test, in my opinion. It's better than maybe even x-rays just because, again, you can have pretty severe heart disease, but a normal heart on x-rays. So the BMP, in my opinion is the cheap man's echo like it's you know and if you can't get to yeah. a cardiologist right away or you don't have the money to get to a cardiologist then a bmp is a very appropriate screening tool and i'm looking for that number do, to be higher than 100. do you add that in as, as like a routine screening uh test for patients you're planning to put under anesthesia is it is it that level of screening tool utility or are you still thinking mostly 
you know, patients I have, I have questions or concerns about, I add this onto, I'm just curious, yeah. like how, are you, are you, yeah. are you just I'm, sending these out all day long? I know. Or this, just, this, I, this I, is a slippery targeted? slope. I'd say there's, I'm definitely, <laughs> I'm definitely in the camp. You're a cardiologist too. You're like, I'm not, you're asking the wrong well, guy. I, but I do, yeah. I think like, I realize that not everyone can come see me, right? Like I, I mean, we see, sure, we see, totally. you know, we're in that, it's going to sound really bad when I tell you how many cases I see and it's not enough, but, um, but I don't have enough time to see all these, all these cats. And so what are we going to do in the meantime? But I do think that the BNP in the cat, in the cat, not so much the dog, but in the cat, I think it's appropriate to start screening cats, just like you do for hyperthyroidism. Like there's enough cats that don't have heart murmurs that have heart disease. And so wouldn't it be nice if we could catch them earlier to just let the client know what's going on with their pet, what they need to watch out for with their pet. Is there any medication their pet should be on before congestive heart failure or something happens? So I, I might make some people mad when I say that, but I do. I think it's, no, no. I think it's um, a good enough test that it might be worth doing more often. I mean, at what age do you start to think uh, about screening for things like this, right? Because it is a, it is a, a measurement of, of sort of the state of the heart. So yeah. it seems like screening kittens is probably not going to be super productive or, or really insightful for the future. But I mean, are you talking about five-year-old cats? Are you talking about eight-year-old? Is this, is this a senior wellness type of screen in your mind? I'm, I'm just yeah. curious, kind of, kind of when you look in your crystal ball, kind of where do you see that going or, or how do you use that tool in your toolbox? Yeah. Um, first of all, highly recommend a crystal ball to every veterinarian because they do come in a very, very handy. Um, well, I, mine <laughs> has been craptastic for the last three, four years. It's just, boy. I wish I had one of those. Um, but, but yeah, I... I think that's a great question. So I would say if you look at HCM, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as a model of heart disease, because it's the most common heart disease we see in cats, it's usually around five to eight years of age where that kind of takes its its peak, peak effect in cats. Um, however, we see some cats as young as three. So I think five seems like a magic number for me. Um, I think maybe okay. three is a little early, but you could catch some that are starting to show signs earlier. But I'd say as early as five, but I think kind of that eight years of age when you're starting to screen for hyperthyroidism, it's probably appropriate to be doing the same for, for the heart. All right, guys, I just want to jump in here with a couple quick updates. First of all, the Uncharted Veterinary Conference was last week in uh, Greenville, South Carolina. It was amazing. We will have a virtual conference uh, in the back half of this year. It'll be in October. It is our GSD for Get Stuff done shorthanded. That's right. Get Stuff Done Shorthanded is going to be a virtual conference, which means you can join it anywhere. It will be in October. More details coming soon. Registration is not yet open, but go ahead and get fired up. This is a great way to see what Uncharted is all about. See, is it really different from everything else like people say it is? Uh, yeah, you can come and see just how that works online. And then, uh, if you love it, we'll see you in person April next year in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, or if you're a practice owner, we'll see you in person in December for our practice owner summit gang if you can't wait that long and you know you can't wait that long we have a couple of workshops coming up we have retain your team speak the languages of appreciation in your workplace that is with dr tracy sands it is on may 21st it is all about showing your team appreciation you know they're tired you know they're overwhelmed you know that they want to feel appreciated for their work are you doing it right are you showing them appreciation? There are simple things that you can do that really make a difference. Guys, this is, as I said, May 21st, 
2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific time. It is $99 to the public. It is free for Uncharted members. Jump on, uh, get registered, come and be there. This one is actually already filling up. It's a month away and there's uh, the spots are, are largely taken. So jump in there and grab a spot while you can. On June the 8th, my friend, Bill Schroeder, uh, founder and CEO of InTouch Veterinary Communications, is doing his workshop, Creating Content That Clients Crave. This is all about making uh, information in a way that clients will want to consume it. If you're uh, tired of trying to educate in the exam room, if you want some backup, if you want some help, if you're like, I don't have enough time to communicate everything I need to communicate, jump in on this webinar uh, or what's not, it's a workshop. You're actually going to work on the thing. That's the difference in a workshop and a webinar. We do the thing in Uncharted. June the 8th, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific time. This is $99 to the public, free for Uncharted members. You can hit the link in the show notes and get registered for that as well. Guys, that's enough from me. Let's get back into this episode. Talk to me, talk to me a little bit about blood pressure in these cats. Uh, is, is that going to be an insightful uh, tool when I, you know, I've got this, this sort of heart murmur? Yeah. I mean, is that something I it didn't come, it didn't come immediately to hand, I guess, when we talked about chest x-rays and we talked about the BMB. Yeah. Um, is, is there, is there real value in trying to get this cat calmed down in a nice... <laughs> a secluded place and try to get a good blood pressure and, and and what can I what can I gain from that Yeah that's a great question so I usually will reserve the blood pressure. I think it's a very important test but I usually will keep it for a little bit later in in the lifespan of the cat so it's unlikely that the cat at this age at five years of age is going to have systemic hypertension however okay. that's a very cheap very accessible test to do because mm-hmm. again if your BNP is high, you're kind of obligated to check a systemic blood pressure and to check a thyroid level. Again, even though it's unlikely in a cat that young, if those two diseases are present, whether that's systemic hypertension or hyperthyroidism, both of those conditions cause a thick left ventricle would cause an elevated BNP. So definitely has its place. Again, in that age range, I'd be less suspicious of it, but totally appropriate to do. Okay. Let's talk about... um... Let's talk about management of heart disease in cats. And I, I think that's something that probably uh, compliance and adherence are are often a bit of a challenge. It's hard, especially if we have ongoing medications for, for these cats. How do you introduce the idea of, you know, um, of long-term medication to pet owners? Uh, what, what sort of pearls of advice do you have for, for setting, setting pet owners uh, for success? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think with cats, it's just a whole nother level of difficulty than compared to dogs. Um, You'll get the occasional cat that just eats everything you put in front of them, but that's not always going to be the case. So the good news is that cats with heart disease, again, HCM being the most common, really the only medication that we routinely recommend in these guys before congestive heart failure happens is a blood thinner. And Plavix, Clopidogrel, we do think is probably better than just aspirin um, for for preventing that thromboembolic event. That's kind of, that's that big, scary thing that we really want to be able to just let clients know their cat has a risk for it. Um, I would say a lot of ATEs, aortic thromboembolism that I see, unfortunately, it's the first time the owner ever knew their cat had disease. So that's the one that we're trying to protect them with. And so really the left atrium has to be big for them to be at that risk. In most cases, I'll say like less than less than 5% of cats that have ATEs have a normal left atrium size. So most of the time the left atrium is big. 
Um, if they have a high BNP, if I would say probably over, at least over 200 BNP range, if we echo them and they have a big left atrium, blood thinner is what we're prioritizing in terms of treatment. It's a once a day okay. therapy. It's a small pill. So those things are in our favor. Um, yep. Once heart failure happens, congestive failure happens, then it's really, it's furosemide and their Plavix plus or minus an ACE inhibitor. We don't have that same evidence that it has to have that ACE inhibitor to have a better prognosis once congestive heart failure happens like we do in dogs. Does it make sense that they would do better? Yeah, it makes sense, but we don't have that exact evidence. So if congestive heart failure happens and I have a cat that the client can't medicate well, um, I'm just going to prioritize what I need to give them. And that's their Lasix, which is a small pill. And that's their Plavix or some type of blood thinner to try to reduce that risk of an ATE. Um, I have cats that are on injectable drugs. They're on injectable Lasix because they can't, the owner can't medicate them. Um, so it's kind of like a diabetic cat in that stance. So we're just giving injections of Lasix twice a day instead of giving oral medications. Um, and there are, there are, you know, you can coat the, the meds in some butter. You can coat them in cottage cheese, you know, those kinds of tricks. But unfortunately, at least not yet, are like transdermal medications. I think that would be a godsend if we could get some bioavailable transdermal Plavix or transdermal Lasix, something like that for these kind of mm -hmm. cats. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was going to say no, no success in that regard so not far. Not yet. Not yet. Um, uh, is there, so what I've heard people mention Pemobendin in cats. Yeah. Is that, is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. That that's kind of one of those back alley. Yeah, hey, it's it's the I <laughs> I was hey, listening to uh, one of your podcasts with Dr. Journey and she was like there is the religion debate, right? So um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I would say that for for the asymptomatic cat, so the cat that's not in congestive heart failure, there's there's probably no cardiologist that's going to recommend pimobendin in those cats. Okay. Um so different than dogs. If there is a cat with congestive heart failure, some cardiologists might start pimobendin in those cats. The rule for me is if there is a murmur, don't give the pimobendin because okay. pimobendin worsens dynamic obstruction. So if you already have a heart murmur, odds are it's dynamic obstruction. Giving pimobendin okay. will worsen that obstruction. Um, so that's kind of my general rule. If there's a murmur, and heart failure in the cat, just don't give Pimo. Just stick with your Lasix, your Plavix, plus or minus your ACE inhibitor. That's that's super useful. Thank you, thank you for walking through this with me. Um, are there any final pearls, words of wisdom, or pitfalls I should look out for just in general dealing with heart disease in a cat? Yeah, I think um, something that you actually mentioned in part of the history was coughing in cats. Uh, coughing in the cat rarely is from heart disease, rarely is from congestive heart failure. I'd say the only times they see cats coughing with congestive heart failure is if they have a significant amount of pleural effusion or a significant amount of pericardial effusion, which are both presentations of left-sided congestive heart failure in the cat. So the coughing cat with a murmur, to me, I actually move heart failure way down on my list and prioritize other things. Um, the other little tidbit I'll leave you with is if you're in the ER setting and you tap a cat's chest, do a thoracocentesis, and you just uh -huh. want to know, is this heart failure or not? You can run that sample on a BNP test. So you don't even have to use the blood. Um, and there's, really? there's these BNP tests, the B-type natriuretic peptide tests that are SNAP tests that are available for the ER setting. It just tells you, is it normal? Is it abnormal? That's a same day test. It's SNAP. It's eight minutes. But you can run that on blood, serum, or the, the pleural effusion, and you actually get a pretty good result with that. That is 
super useful. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing. I'll tell you real quick. I, I remember being a first year veterinarian and I had a cat that had a chest full of fluid and I was going to tap it and the owner was there and I was getting ready to do it. And he said, how many of these have you done before? <laughs> and I was like, I wish you hadn't asked me that. And, and then I was like, I'm, I'm going to be honest. And I'm like, none, but I've read about them. And he was like, is there someone else who could do this? And I had to go get, I, and I oh did, I went, the most humbling experience. Oh my gosh. But That's, I got, that happened. That still happens to me. They're like, how many have you done? And the, <laughs> the, the devil on my shoulder wants to say, whether it's one or a hundred, I'm all you got. So you're yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. And just for me, I worked at a big practice. There were like literally a dozen other vets and they were like, why don't you get somebody else, Junior? I've never, I've, that's, that's whenever Humbling. I start to tap a cat's chest, I, a cat's chest, I think, how many of these have I done? It's like, oh, a dozen. Okay. You know, but, um, oh man, that's funny. But, uh, yeah. Well, the other thing too, you, uh, how many of you done? Like you did a rotating internship. You did an emergency critical care internship. Uh, and then you did a residency. There's probably not a whole lot that you haven't done once. Um, At least already. Once, yeah, so. but, it, but it is. It's, it's always a little humbling. And you're kind of like, eh, <laughs> how do I answer that? I, you know, I, I do. I've been doing vet medicine for 13 years. And I am humble <laughs> every, every day. And I go in there and go, uh-huh. oh, well, I love it. You know, we, all, we always... Yeah, I think I think if it wasn't that way, I think it, it might get boring. I agree. Uh, and it's you know that medicine's a lot of things. Never boring. Boring's not <laughs> one of them. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Thanks for being my here. My pleasure. Thank you. And that's our episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got a ton out of it. Um, if you did, please feel free to leave us an honest review wherever you get your podcast. It really makes a difference to me. Um, it's how people find us. It's it's the nicest thing that you can do, and it only takes a moment. Gang, that's all I got. Take care of yourselves. Be well. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.